Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, and welcome once again to History Dweebs. I am Tim. Welcome to the podcast where we take a lighthearted look at the dark side of history. Today we're going to talk about the Triangle Shirtwaist fire, uh, Company fire that occurred back in 1911 and killed um, 146 uh, garment workers in New York City. Uh, a tragic event, and we're going to discuss that. Um, but before we do, let me remind everyone that we are a um, comedy podcast and we use adult language. So if adult language offends you, well, we don't know if we're a comedy podcast, but we definitely use adult language. Yes, we do. We can say that for certain that we're going to probably use adult language. Although we don't, we don't curse as much. We don't curse like when Brand- Brandy's, Brandy's really the one that gets us at E rating. She really is. She, she is like a sailor. Oh, she's a foul mouth whore to me. And <laughs> Brandy <laughs> is on assignment in North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, she's uh, visiting with the uh, her cousin <laughs> Kim Young Hong, <laughs> uh, hanging out there, probably uh, uh, playing video games with him um, and uh, drinking uh, riced wine or whatever, whatever they drink over there in North Korea. Playing the, uh, they play cards against humanity for real over there. Timmy. <laughs> they do, yeah, don't they? Um, but anyway, Brandy's not with us today, but we're gonna, she'll be with us next time or soon. Um, we're just having problems with the holidays, getting all three of us together and we don't want well, And we don't like her, Timmy. Well, I didn't want to say that. that okay. was, this was kind of our cover. But anyway, I am joined by, uh, the man who's considered, uh, the most dangerous man in podcasting today. A man who has been described as an oasis in the desert of despair. I'm talking about a course. The very honorable the Reverend Colonel Charles Beauregard Hawkwaters III, affectionately known as the Southern Gentleman. How are you today, Colonel? Oh, not bad, Timmy. Not bad. Um, it's cold out. It's cold it out. is cold, cold out. Hell it here. is cold out. Um, now, I know, Colonel, you've worked in some sweatshops in your day. I have. Yes. Okay. I've actually owned a few. <laughs> uh, so this is right up your alley, then, this mm-hmm. story. Uh, do you know? Uh, have you have you studied this story much? I have, Timmy. Okay, I so have. You, you got some background. <clears throat> yeah, because I made sure that uh, my factories were were fireproofed. Uh, I see. I see. Uh, so you're you're benevolent. Uh, you're well, benevolent, as long as they worked, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So um, you want to just get jump into the story? Let's jump right into all it. All right. Timmy. So on March twenty fifth, nineteen eleven. A fire broke out at the Triangle Shirtwaist Company 
factory in New York City. The fire in New York City on March 25, 1911, was the deadliest industrial disaster in the history of the city, one of the deadliest in U.S. history. The 500 workers, who were mostly young women, located on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floor of the Ash Building. It's kind of ironic that this is called yeah, the Ash Building. Yeah, called the Ash Building. Yeah, sadly. They called it before and after uh, the Ash Building. Yeah, 8th, 9th, and 10th floors. Uh, they tried to escape, but uh, due to poor conditions, locked doors, and faulty fire, a faulty fire escape, uh, 146 of these folks, uh, workers, died in the fire. The large number of deaths in the Triangle Shirt Waste Factory fire exposed the dangerous conditions in high-rise factories at the time and prompted the creation of new building fire and safety codes throughout the United States. So, give you a little background. The Triangle Shirt Waste Company was owned by two men, Max Blank and Isaac Hayes. Harris. I mean, sorry, hey, Isaac Hayes. That's it would be cool if it was Isaac Hayes. Uh, Isaac Hayes won bad mother. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. It was Max Blank and Isaac Harris. <laughs> Both men immigrated from Russia as young men, uh, and they met when they got to the United States. And by 1900, they had a little shop together on uh, Woodstead Street in New York. They named it the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. The business grew quickly, and uh, within a couple of years, uh, Max Blank and Isaac Harris were wealthy men. The sure, I should explain, I guess, what a shirt waist is. If you if you remember Colonel seeing pictures of women uh, dressed in the turn of the twentieth century, they'll have this shirt that kind of looks like the, it's like a, a blouse that's untucked. Yeah, and then they'll have a dress underneath right. it. That's was that's what they made. The sh- they called they called them shirt waists, and they were very popular from the nineteen and ni- late nineteen hundreds to the early twentieth century. The business grew quickly, and within a couple of years, as I said, both Max and Isaac were wealthy men. Uh, they were a true American success story, going from poor immigrants uh, living in a crowded tenement to living in fine Fifth Avenue homes, uh, all in a matter of a few years. Uh, growing quickly, they moved their business to the top three floors of a new 10-story building called the Ash Building uh, in New York City. Uh, it's near Washington Square in New York City for all of our listeners in New York. It's now uh, it's New York University's Brown Building right yes, now. Yes, yes. It's a part of New York University now. It still stands, and I think it's a national landmark now. Mm-hmm or at least a a New York City landmark. The factory, um, which consisted of row after row of electric sewing machines, so this is in the garment district, were located on the 8th, 9th, and 9th floors, while on the 10th floor were office buildings, cells, administrative offices, and that's where Max and uh, Isaac had their offices on the 10th floor. By 1911... The Triangle Shirtwaist Company was one of the largest blouse makers in New York City and employed 500 garment workers, mostly young women ranging in the age from, in the age from 10 to 50. This is before child labor laws, so they had a lot of you know kids working there, or at least before teenagers. the government got its nose all up in capitalism <laughs> and wouldn't let us work those little kids. Yeah, anymore. what's Brandy say that, about little fingers? <laughs> anyway. Um, so great buttons or something. And then what she mm-hmm. says, 
Yeah. She's heartless. Anyway, this is there were at the time there was something like forty thousand garment workers in New York City, and all the working conditions at the Triangle Factory uh, Company were dangerous. It was considered one of the more modern workplaces at the time in the garment industry. Workers used electric sewing machines as opposed to some of the uh, factories where they had the pedal machines. So it was considered a good gig, I guess, uh, at the time. Um, and it had large windows where, like, some of the smaller factories were just, you know, mm -hmm. uh, small, dark, cramped spaces using pedal uh, yeah. pe pedal sewing machines. Um, so this one is at least a little bit more modern, more up-to-date. Uh, it would have been – now, today we would consider it a sweatshop, but in its time, mm -hmm. it was, you know – uh, one of the more progressive factories in town. They specialized, as I said, in making shirt waist, which was the popular women's blouse at the time. Uh, I like a shirt with puffy sleeves. You me. like puffy sleeves? Yeah, they, yeah. These had puffy sleeves. Yeah. yeah. You like a pirate shirt. You want a pirate I like shirt? A, well, you know, I, pirate. I, like to, <laughs> I, I like to loop me some booty, Timmy. <laughs> I see. <laughs> The Triangle Shirtways Company uh, had made Max Blank and Isaac Harris rich, largely because they exploited their workers. And, you know, Brandy would do that, of course. Yeah, she would. Now, yeah. see, I would have been fair to my workers. To I me. know you. You're you're a very benevolent. My As workers would have been would have been uh, fairly wealthy to me. Mm -hmm. I would have shared the wealth with the workers. I know to me. you're you're known for your generosity, mm -hmm. Carl. Approximately 500 people, uh, mostly immigrant women from Russia, South or uh, East Europe worked in the Triangle Shirtwaist Company factory in the Ash Building. Uh, as I said, the factory was on the 8th and ninth floors, the 10th floor being mostly uh, administrative offices. Uh, and as you mentioned, Colonel, the building still stands today. It's owned by New York University. The women there worked long hours, six days a week, in cramped quarters and were paid low wages. Many of the workers were young, uh, some, as I said earlier, as, er, as young as 10 years old. In 1909, um, many of the uh, garment workers in New York City went on strike for higher pay, a shorter work week, and uh, to get to, uh, be have their unions recognized. Uh, and they wanted safer work conditions. Um, so they went out on strike, and it was not it did not go well. Um, eventually, they would they would uh, get a slight pay increase in their hours. They were working uh, 16 and uh, 18 hour days, six days a week, and they would bring in like two or three dollars a week. So, you know, just enough to really to survive. But they went on strike in 1909 for better working conditions. And they, they actually got some support from um, J.P. Morgan's daughter, Ann Morgan. Uh -huh. Um, she was very active in the women's suffrage movement, and um, she took up their cause. And because uh, what happened when they went out on a strike, the company, including including uh, this company, they hired uh, prostitutes to go out on the picket line and beat yeah. up the women, and then the police would come and re arrest the strikers. So, but um, Ann Morgan, who was J.P. Morgan, of course, uh, wealthy banker. Who I read, I read this that he was the Federal Reserve Bank. Yeah, <laughs> at the time. yeah. Because there was, was before the Federal mm -hmm. Reserve Bank, but he pretty much guaranteed. He had so guaranteed, much wealth, yeah. he pretty much guaranteed the uh, 
financial uh, system in the United States. But anyway, his daughter became very sympathetic to their cause and eventually settled a strike. And uh, they got better working conditions, or they got—I'm sorry—they got better wages, and they got, they their hours were decreased, but um, they were their union was not recognized, and so they didn't uh, improve their working conditions. Didn't improve in terms of safety, so basically their conditions still still kind of sucked. The women were charged; they were charged for the electricity they used, uh, and if they made any mistakes, they were charged for those as well. Um, now, I mean, the factory itself, they were little ent- entrepreneurs to me. you got to charge them for their cost now. They were on, as I said, most of the women were on the eighth and ninth floor of this factory. Um, there were two doors into the factory, and the owners kept one of them locked. And the other door was guarded by a security guard uh, who ch- would check the women after each chif- shift to make sure that they were not stealing any shirts or materials. So they kept this one door locked because they wanted to be able to make sure no one could walk out with right. with a shirt or with material or whatever, and uh, they could only guard one door. So, this, And this comes into play when this fire occurs. Women who missed work due to pregnancy or illness were immediately fired. The This first uh, forced workers to, con- to continue to go to work even when they were not feeling well, which, of course, you know, if they have some kind of virus or bug, they spread it mm-hmm. to Everybody. Yeah. In addition to these unpleasant conditions, women were often subjected to repeated sexual harassment by their owners and floor foremen. In 1909, as I said earlier, there was this major strike, but it didn't really improve the conditions. Um, But it was settled, um, and uh, they got a little better pay, a little better, you know, hours. They didn't have to work quite as many hours, but... Uh, still, the condition in the factories were not very safe. So on Saturday, March 25, 1911, a fire started on the eighth floor. Um, workers had just ended, uh, work had just ended at 4.30 that day. It was a Saturday, so they only worked eight hours on Saturday. And it was a, a warm spring day, and most of the workers were getting their belongings together and getting their paycheck. When one of the ladies noticed a small fire had started in uh, a scrap bin, no one is sure even to this day what started the fire. But the fire marshal later would claim that he thought that the, a cigarette butt had possibly been tossed into this bin. Like they would keep scraps of, I guess, material right where they're cutting and sewing in this bin, and someone tossed a, a cigarette in there. Nearly everything in the room was flammable. Hundreds of pounds of cotton scraps, tissue paper, patterns, and wooden tables. So at the time of the fire, the only safety measures available to the workers, they kept buckets of water on the floor. They had 27 buckets of water on the floor, and they had a fire escape, uh, which would, you know, which we'll talk about in a bit. It ends up collapsing. Most of the doors were locked. Uh, and those who were not locked only opened inwardly and were effectively held shut by the onrush of workers trying to escape. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No. Several of the workers threw pails of water on the fire, but it quickly got out of control. Now, this is on the 8th floor, right? Right. So there's workers on the 8th, ninth, and 10th floor. 
It breaks out on the eighth floor. Most of the women on the eighth floor were able to get out. And the people on the tenth floor where they had their offices Mm -hmm. and where the owners, Max and uh, Isaac, were located, they were able to get to the roof and get on to a neighboring building and escape. It's the women on the ninth floor that uh, really got trapped. Uh, So the people on the eighth floor got out. The people on the tenth floor got warned. And they got out, but for some reason, no one told the women on the ninth floor about this fire. And the fire, you know, the fire started the floor below them. Mm-hmm. So, as I said, people on the eighth floor got out. People on the tenth floor, the executive offices, they got out. It's the women on the ninth floor that got caught. As the clothing uh, materials fed the fire panic, uh, the, uh, the fire, panic ensued and workers tried to escape any way they could. Everyone rushed to, uh, to escape the fire. Some ran to uh, the, they had four elevators, and um, this is back in the day where they had the elevator operators. Right. And they had two elevator operators working <clears throat> that day because it was a Saturday. And these guys were really courageous. They kept going up and down and taking people out. They got over 100 people out um, before, you know, they just couldn't do it anymore. The fire was just too bad. They could only carry 15 at a time, but they were carrying like 30. They were only spared to carry like 15. Um, so there wasn't time for too many trips up and down. You know, this is the old yeah. elevators. Uh, other other women, and these are mostly women. There were some men killed, but other uh, women ran to the fire escape. And 20 women were able to escape on the fire escape. But 25 women died when the fire escape collapsed. Oh. Yeah, so that had to be pretty horrific. Um, Like I said, many on the 10th floor were able to escape, including the owners, Max and Isaac. They made it safely to the roof of a neighboring nearby building. So they made it out okay. Um, It's the women on the 9th floor that really had the problem. There was this elderly uh, elevator operator, and he risked his life, as I said. He went and made four or five trips uh, and helped over 100 people escape. Um, the flames eventually became too much, and the elevator start working, stopped working. And at that point, some of the women tried to hoist themselves down the cable, the elevator cable, uh, and but they couldn't hold on, and they would just fall. Yeah. Eventually, women were just so desperate, they just started jumping down the elevator shaft. Mm. So it was a pretty... <clears throat> Pretty gruesome. All of those died. All the ones that jumped down the elevator died. Damn. Now, Timmy, it, by this time, um, all the avenues of escape were blocked. The elevators weren't available. The fire escape fell down. The doors of the hallway were locked. I mean, you were just trapped in there. Now, many of the workers headed to the window to find a means of escape, and it was a warm spring Saturday, so the streets were f- full of onlookers. As the women started clinging to the window ledges nine stories above. Yeah, it must have been a terrible sight. Dude. At 4.45, the fire department was alerted to the fire. They rushed to the scene, raised their ladder, but it only reached the sixth floor. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, well, yeah, but you know, even today, a, uh-huh. a friend of mine's a fireman, and he told me, if you're in a building and you're above the 11th floor, uh-huh. there ain't much they can do for you. And no ladders. I mean, if there's long, if there's, you know, if you're one person, they could possibly send a helicopter or Uh whatever. But for large groups like that? Yeah, nothing. No ladders. Nope. That's as far as they're going to go. So uh, 
They raise the ladders that reach. Now, to add to this already bleak situation, the water streams from the hoses could only reach the seventh floor. Yeah, so they're getting no relief. Basically, it was yeah. a, they couldn't do nothing for them. So those on the window ledges started jumping, Timmy. Ugh. Now, although a few survived, most jumped to their death. Some, uh, they tried to grab the ladders. Some would jump and try to grab the ladders two stories below, but for the most part, they were just bouncing off and Ugh. plummeting to their death. Now, one 20-year-old actually survived it, only to die in the hospital over wounds a couple of days later. Um, now, upon finding that they could not find it, use the doors to escape and the fire burning at their clothes and hair, the girls of the Triangle Shirtwaist Company, um, and this group was mostly between 13 and 23, jumped nine stories to the death. It was uh, like you've seen on 9-11. Mm, you know, yeah, exactly. Because once you get past the fourth floor, I believe it's fourth or fifth floor is when you reach uh, maximum speed. Oh. So it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, if you jump from, I, and this I, is, I'm like pretty I say, sure this it's the is a spring, floor. a warm spring Saturday. So mm-hmm. you imagine the crowds that were just standing around watching these women just, you know, jumping to their death. Well, one guy, the first one to jump was a man. Another one was seen. Another man was seen kissing a young woman at the window before they both jumped to their death. Bystanders looked on in horror as one girl after another jumped to their death. Why don't you motherfuckers catch somebody? Shit. <laughs> Get down there, break the fall or some shit. Yeah, probably kill yourself, too. Yeah, but they could get those blankets. and They did. <clears throat> they did get yeah. the blankets. What happened with the blankets was that the, these girls jumped in unison. Right. So, so they were all hit in these blankets, yeah. and they couldn't hold them. They were, these, mm-hmm. they were ripping these blankets into sh- uh, shreds, they, you know, like the firemen were holding. So after each girl jumped, Timmy, a horrific thud could be heard as the body hit the concrete sidewalk. And then sometimes girls jumped three or four at a time, and the onlookers watched in horror as body after body fell to the earth. Now, the bodies of these teenage girls is just lying in the streets. Now, the blankets that the would-be rescuers used ripped at the weight because of the speed and the multiple bodies. Um, some of the girls tried to jump to the ladders, but they, they couldn't reach the ninth floor. None of them ever did reach the ladders. The fire escape in the rear of the building collapsed and trapped even more employees. Now, the fire was put out in a half an hour, but that was not soon enough. Nineteen bodies were charred against the locked doors. Twenty-five bodies were found huddled in the cloakroom. They would have died of smoke inhalation. Um, Of the victims whose ages were known, the oldest victim was Providenza Pano at 43. Youngest were 14-year-old. Kate Leone and Sarah Maltese. Most died of burns, asphyxiation, blunt impact injuries, or a combination of the three, Timmy. Um, Now here. Mm -hmm. In the aftermath of this, of the 500 employees, 146 were dead. The bodies were taken to a covered pier on 26th Street near the East River, and they were laid out in a long row um, with the heads of victims propped up so they could be identified by relatives. Yeah, and there's photos of them... If, if, if you just Google, uh, yeah, Triangle Waste fi- Factory. Yeah, this fire. You'll see photos. It's they just line these girls up and down the street, and they prop their heads up so that uh, they could be identified by oh. relatives. Now, the nearby Bellevue Morgue was overrun with bodies, and a makeshift morgue was set up on the adjoining pier on the East River. Thousands of people lined up to identify the bodies of loved ones, and after a week, all but seven were identified. 
fire caused the death of 146 garment workers, 123 women, 23 men who died from the fire. Most of the victims were recent Italian and Jewish immigrants aged 14 to 23. Now, a funeral procession, Timmy, was held on March 28, 1911 for the victims of the fire. 100,000 New Yorkers lined the procession route. Yeah, people were angry at this. Because remember, yeah. they just had this strike, The big right? strike, it yeah. It publicized strike, work, uh, and they were striking for better working conditions. And Well, they wanted someone to blame, Timmy, and they charged Isaac and Max, the two owners, with one count of manslaughter. The manslaughter charge was a result of the owners ordering that one of the doors be kept locked to prevent theft. One of the bodies was found slumped against the locked door, leading investigators to believe that this woman would have survived if not for the locked door, which was in violation of a city ordinance. Yeah. So there was, so they, a, there was <clears throat> a code. They just yeah. were violating the code. Yeah. Um, of course, investigators knew too well it was likely all lives would have been saved had the doors been unlocked. The investigation found that the locks were intended to be locked during working hours based on the findings from the fire, but the defense stressed that the prosecution failed to prove that, prove that the owners knew that. The jury acquitted the men of first and second degree manslaughter, but they were found liable of wrongful death during a subsequent civil suit, and plaintiffs were awarded compensation in the amount of $75 per deceased victim. Man. But, of course, the insurance company paid Harris $60,000, more $60,000 more than the reported losses, or about $400 per casualty. Jesus. Two years later, Max Blank was once again for arrested for locking the door in his factory. Somebody should put a should have caught this some bitch on fire and thrown him out the window. Exactly. Um, he was fined twenty dollars. The fire and large deterrent. number of deaths exposed the hazardous conditions and fire dangers that was, you know, unique to these high rise factories. Shortly after the Triangle Fire, the New York City passed a large number of fire safety and building codes and created very stiff penalties. You said I, stiff. I occasionally will give somebody a stiff penalty, Timmy. <laughs> okay. Um, for I will occasionally give somebody a stiff penalty for noncompliance, Timmy, and that's what they did. Um, <clears throat> many many people don't look at it as a penalty; they look at it as a reward for compliance. But yeah, one anyway. man's one man's trash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Other cities soon followed New York's example. The Triangle Shirtways Fire would change the regulation of government by government of business. Um. But really, did it? <laughs> I no, mean, yeah, really? Yeah, really. When you think it. about exactly. it. Um, before the fire government, the government had stayed mostly away from business, feeling it had no power to legislate it. Legislate it. After the fire, government could not avoid instituting laws to protect the workers. Once the New York legislature enacted safety laws, other states in the U.S. followed. Workers also began to look toward unions to voice their concerns over safety and pay. Samuel Gompers of the AFL had won a lot of trust and admiration by sitting in on the Factory Commission of 1911. Yeah, so this is really a highly publicized, yeah. uh, you know, it created a debate about what role government, you know, that government uh, yeah. should, what role government should play in regulating businesses. That, that that would they had pretty much ignored. Although in that case there was 
a there were some regulations, yeah. yeah. That they Costing just $75 a person, so. Um, an investigation found that one of the main reasons the death toll was so high was that there was inadequate wood escape routes for the workers. Some of the doors would have provided an avenue of escape, but they were kept locked to prevent workers from stealing from the company. At the Triangle Shirtwaist factory, some of the doors were locked. When the girls were, tried to escape through the locked doors, the fire consumed them. But even the doors that were not locked were of no use to the workers. The doors in the Triangle Shirtwaist factory opened only inward. Yeah, we talked about <clears> that <throat> in the uh, theater fire, remember? Yeah, uh, yeah the, people they, they, just, the, the momentum or the force just crushed everything. Right. So when the girls tried to escape through the doors, the girls in the front could not open the doors because all the girls pushing from behind. If they'd opened outward, the Russia girls would have opened the door. Now, later regulations required factories to make all doors open outward in factories. New regulations were also require all doors to remain unlocked during business hours in accordance with new regulations. New laws now require a sprinkler system which must be installed if a company employs more than 25 people above ground level. The girls of the Triangle Shirtwaist Company had only 27 buckets of water to save themselves. Yeah, and really, who's going to sit there and fight the... You know what I mean? Yeah. You're going to want to get out of there. How are you going to do with 27 buckets of water anyway? Yeah. Now, today, there's a ton of laws to govern the condition of workplaces. Among those regulations are implemented to let people out during a fire. Multiple fire exits, unblocked fire doors, and clear pathways. Um, firefighting equipment also is must be maintained in the building. Fire sprinklers for higher floors and portable fire extinguishers. Education for employees is a must. All employees are to be trained on the proper use of a fire extinguisher as well as escape routes and fire drills. Emergency evacuation plans are also required in writing and posted. Written fire prevention plans must also be available to me. Now, all areas that are fire hazard or that contain equipment or, or chemicals that could start fires must be maintained and controlled at all times. The United States Department of Labor classified this set of standards as the Occupational Safety and Health Administration Standards. OSHA to me. Yeah, they played a, uh, <clears throat> this fire played a key role in the a development lot of, these, of OSHA. Uh, fire regulations that we take for granted today. Today, the Ash Building, where the fire occurred, has been designated a historical national landmark and a New York City landmark. Mm. 146 people died. That fire. It, you know, Timmy, but really, I mean, you think about it, how much has changed? I mean, we've written more regulations, but at the end of the day, when there's a big tragedy, Beverly Hills fire, um, I mean, it always comes down, these tragedies almost always come down to somebody trying to make more money mm-hmm. cut corners and um right. and nobody ever goes to jail for it no no and uh and that is so true i mean that's uh it, it, it and and even today i mean if something like that occurred there would probably be no ramifications in terms of uh, the owners of the building or whatever i mean it may be fined but um you know, that becomes a part of the cost of doing business. Yeah. Well, know? I mean, and, and the most uh, the most well-known to me case is the uh, Pinto. Exactly. You know, the Pintos, they decided, well, it was it was better, it was more cost-effective to pay up the victims who were blowing up than to recall the cars. Yeah. And that was similar to the McDonald's uh, case with the coffee. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, people people don't understand that case, and I they know, don't it's understand used it. As a, uh, it's always used by for tort who, reform. For tort reform, yeah. to saying how ridiculous that uh, uh, that suit was with the woman who got burned by the coffee. Uh, but McDonald's had been on put on. They've been notice. put on notice numbers of times, yeah, time and time and time again. Their coffees were, uh, being, <clears throat> yeah, uh, were uh, at a higher. Uh, they were dangerous. They were dangerously high yeah. in terms of the yeah. um, temperatures that they were kept, and they, as you said, they were put on notice numerous times. Yeah. It, it just wasn't. It, it was a cost benefit analysis mm-hmm. to them. To to go in and change all their equipment, right, or just continue to do what they've been doing, but and pay people off like somebody to point that at, at as, you know, as, yeah. as uh, how ridiculous it yeah, is. Yeah, as a uh, what it really is is about is the one time that uh, a company got their ass handed to them for doing the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. I, if you haven't looked into that case, I would <clears throat> encourage you to do so because it's often given as an example. A frivolous lawsuit, and it was anything but that. I mean, that that was a very uh, uh, deliberate decision by McDonald's um, that they made, uh, and it was like you said, it was based upon a cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. And it would cost too much to go in and, and change all the equipment they have to make the coffee at a reasonable temperature that wasn't dangerous. Um, yeah. But all right. Uh, so your final thoughts, Colonel, on I, it's fire. just something we see, you know, not so horrifically, but time and time and time again. I mean, you have these minors, you have all kinds of things that just happen and yeah, nobody and you got is a lot of people in a crowded space. There's always a, a, a opportunity for something tragic to happen like yeah. that. And as you said, even today, if, if, if you're in a high rise or something, you're pretty much on your own. Yeah. If something like that I mean, those people in 9-11, they were, yeah. they were helpless. Yeah. There was no, nothing anybody could do for them. So. All right. Uh, we would like to thank all of you who support the show on Patreon. If you would like to support us on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash historydweebs where you can give a little, you can give a lot, or... Or just a wee little bit to me. All right. Colonel, give us some shout-outs for our fine people who support us on Patreon. Uh, James C. Wright, Tommy Lane, Jason Dykes, Terry Stafford... Uh, Shelly, Shelly Garrett, Bridget Clavey, Brandy McBride, Jennifer Savota, Maggie Glover, Mike Sadler, Jamie Dent, Maja, Tyrone, Amber Scoville, Marsha Boris, Stacey Alsop, Jody and Sean Wells, Amber Anderson, They Walk Among Us, Ben and Rosanna. Our good our friends, lovely Ben friend. and Rosanna from They Walk Among Us, the number one podcast in Great Britain. In Great Britain. Uh, Lorna Violet. Um, and and Ben and Roseanne mentioned that they might be coming. They might possibly be coming to the states. I hope they do. They're talking about coming to CrimeCon in May and, and coming to Cincinnati and seeing a ball game with us. Timmy, we would love that. We would love that, and we would encourage all our listeners to attend CrimeCon. Come and hang out with us. It's a week. Of, I believe it's May fourth. Mm-hmm. Weekend of May fourth in Nashville. We're going to be there. You're going to be there, Colonel. I'll be Holding there. Court. I'll be there. Yes. So we would encourage everyone, and we hope to see our good friends Ben and Rosanna from They Walk Among Us. Lorna Violet, Mike Dale, Kelly Charette, Karen Widener, Callie. Callie, you know Callie is just just so damn funny, Timmy. She is. She's a very... She's a, uh, the girl could do stand-up for a little. Yes, and very a very attractive young lady. She is a beautiful young very lady. Funny. Very smart, very, very pretty, but she is so damn funny. 
Lauren Meredith, Jessica Greeno, uh, Mike Brown from Pleasing Tears, Sarah Bloom, Amber Croup, Joe from Now America History Podcast. Another good podcast. Catherine Cockeraz Richardson, Fiona, lovely Fiona Crisp, Laura O'Reilly, Christine Bourgeois, Aaron, Kimberly Cameron. Kimberly, now see Kimberly Cameron. You start a fire like that today, she's gonna be up yes, your ass, Timmy. She's gonna be Kimberly Cameron, attorney. She's a barrister. Kimberly Cameron Esquire. Too. Yes, yes. Um, Elise. Um, Who, by Diane? the way, at least posted a picture of her son. It's the cutest. Oh, picture. I know she did. Her yeah. little boy is the cutest baby. Um, history goes bump. Diane. Annette Petray, Lise, Jahara, Alicia, and Chip Mincy, one of our originals yes, and one of our, our favorites. Friends. We're hoping to see them in Tennessee. They're yeah. from that way down in uh, Tennessee. Hope to see them in Nashville. Marika Smith, Jeff, and Don Chestnut with their uh, Jeff's Backroads to History and Poems by Jeff. Yes, two great podcasts. I love their history podcast. Karen Barnes, Rachel Flynn, Shirley Strap, Todd Long, Lydia Fisher, Phyllis Munson, Melissa Montoya, Cindy Lou, Kristen Malachinsky, Heather Poole, Adam McWaters, The Vanished Podcast. And that's another one with a pretty baby to me right there. Oh, Marissa. Marissa, yeah. yes. Um, Canadian True Crime, Christy Lee, Insight, Our Ladies at Insight, Charlie and Allie, Joe Clifford, Mistress Veda, Ron Monasterio, Tracy Smith, Jess, John B., Nene, Bridget Bernard, Stacy, Kristen Hauer, Cheryl Weldon, Nicholas and Ryan, Julia Rodriguez, Michaela. Um, of course, we cannot go, we would really not, our, our mascot is Rudy. Rudy the Wonder, the Wonder Dog. Dog. Um, lady, the lovely Lady Beverly. Yes. Um, Happy holidays, and, Beverly. Thank you for the card. It's very sweet of you. And as I said, Timmy, the matriarch of the podcast, Timmy, the reason we show up here to do this, Timmy, the lovely Dottie Scott. Uh, Happy New Year's, Mom. And I'd like to give a shout out to Tara uh, from Bloody Murder. Oh, our favorite Tara, podcast. yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tara's funny. And uh, our friends at uh, Collar Me Dead, another really funny podcast. I have not I have not been able to listen to oh, that one man, yet. Oh, man, it's me. hilarious. Check it, it out. Yes, it's very funny. They're like us, only they're two women. Uh, but, probably you know, better but looking they cuss and like funnier. Sailors. Oh, they do they? It cuss like brandy. It cuss like brandy? Yes, yes. So good. Uh, check them check out, Collar Me Dead. Uh, of course, check our friends uh, Tara and Barney out at uh, Bloody Bloody Murder. Thank you all for joining us, and we'll see you next time on History Dweeves. Good day. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 